everyone and welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. We are a select band this morning. I think uh, our compatriots are making the most of this little bit of sunshine before the autumn sets in properly, so we'll be thinking of them this morning while we're here. Uh, our service will be led by our Minister Katrina and as usual everything we need to follow the service is both on our printed order of service and on the screen. Don't think we'll get any children with us this morning, so we don't need to worry too much about the craft activities. But if somebody comes in late, maybe just just arriving. So maybe if they sit down next to you, <laughs> could you let them know that there are the craft activities at the back, and also if the, any of the wee ones come, the Kelvin sweets available. It's good to switch on my microphone. <laughs> it's good to be together to worship God this morning. And this is the last of our summer series services, as Anne said. So we will be hopefully doing a little bit of wrapping things up together this morning. Um, the craft activity at the back is suitable for people of any age. So if you are somebody who wants to do something with your hands whilst you're listening at any point, just feel free to go there as well. <coughs> our call to worship comes from Psalm 84. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Our opening hymn of praise this morning is one that I recall from my school days, and it's kind of scary that I'm now somewhere in the middle of the age that that's talking about. Um, I was very young when I learned it. But if we're able, we stand to sing of the Lord of hopefulness, <coughs> eagerness, kindness, and gentleness. <coughs> Yeah. 
I'm going to use a Celtic prayer for our prayer of approach this morning, and it comes from a modern Celtic collection called Sounds of the Eternal. And of course, as is our usual practice at the end of that, we will say together the Lord's Prayer in the form and language that feels most normal for each of us. So let us pray. Thanks be to you, O God, for the stirring of new life in us this day, for the rising from the dreams of the night to the fresh flowing of energy, for the vitality that awakens our bodies and the desires that stir in our souls. Let us know the power for life that is in us, the life force that is in our senses and the might that is in our hearts. Let us know you as the source of such force and be wise to its true streams and its false currents. Let us serve with our strength this day. Let us serve love with our strength in heart and mind and body this day let us serve. And in the strength you give us, we pray in the words Jesus gave his followers, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our deeds, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Assigned is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So the scallop shell. I've got a picture of a scallop shell. I'm just going to come up here so I can see better what I'm doing. This is a scallop shell, which is often used as a symbol of pilgrimage. And this is um, the kind of scallop shell that often uh, pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago will put on the back of their rucksacks as they set off, or maybe will choose to buy as a souvenir at the end. But why scallop shells? Well, there are all sorts of different stories, tales and legends. Some of them are quite strange, and others are remarkably practical. So the first story is that after St. James, Santiago, was martyred, his body was taken by ship to Spain. And when the ship arrived at the shore, one of the horses on board the ship was spooked, and it fell into the water, complete with its rider. Fortunately, neither rider nor horse was injured, and when they came out, up out of the water, they were covered in scallop shells. I think that's a bit unlikely, but that's one of the stories. Didn't even make you laugh, so it's clearly, you know, just rubbish. There's another story which seems to be a bit more likely, is that often pilgrims were people who were sent by their local priest on a penitential journey, a journey to think and reflect and to confess and to seek forgiveness and, and turn their lives around. Uh, in order to prove that they'd got there, because there was no email and no phones and no royal mail back in those days, they needed a proof. And so they would get a shell at the end of the journey and carry it back with them. Seems a little bit more likely, but I suspect you could cheat. I suspect there were other places where you could get scallop shells. And then there's another one. And this one is just a purely practical one. A scallop shell is actually really useful. You can use it as a cup to drink out of. You can use it as a bowl to eat out of. A lot of um, Christian traditions who practice infant baptism will use a scallop shell a bit bigger than the ones I've got here, it has to be said and use that to scoop up the water that they put over the head of the infant, because it's a sign that life is a pilgrimage, a journey, and that faith is also about journeying. And so I thought it would be nice if we could have some scallop shells to take with us on our own journey of faith. 
And we're going, to, I'm going to, we're going to pass these out whilst we sing our next song, so it might be easier to do that sitting down. And I will try to remember to move the words on this time. Will you come and follow me if I but call <coughs> your name? first reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the time when Herod was king. Soon afterwards, some men who studied the stars came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the baby born to be the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it came up in the east and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard about this, he was very upset and so was everyone else in Jerusalem. He called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, where will the Messiah be born? In the town of Bethlehem in Judea, they answered, for this is what the prophet wrote. Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least of the leading cities of Judah. For from you will come a leader who will guide my people Israel. So Herod called the visitors from the east to a secret meeting and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem with these instructions. Go and make a careful search for the child and when you find him let me know so that I too may go and worship him. And so they left, and on their way they saw the same star they had seen in the east. When they saw it, how happy they were, what joy was theirs. It went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They went into the house, and when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they knelt down and worshipped him. They brought out their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh and presented them to him. Then they returned to their country by another road, 
since God had warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod. Our second reading is from Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. On that same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about 11 kilometres from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. As they talked and discussed, Jesus himself drew near and walked along with them. They saw him, but somehow did not recognise him. Jesus said to them, What are you talking about to each other as you walk along? They stood still with sad faces. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening there these last few days? What things, he asked. The things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, he answered. This man was a prophet and was considered by God and by all the people to be powerful in everything he said and did. Our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and he was crucified. And we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to set Israel free. Besides all that, this is now the third day since it happened. Some of the women of our group surprised us. They went at dawn to the tomb, but could not find his body. They came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who told them that he is alive. Some of our group went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow you are to believe everything the prophet said. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And Jesus explained to them what was said about himself in all the scriptures, beginning with the books of Moses and the writings of all the prophets. As they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they held him back, saying, Stay with us, the day is almost over and it's getting dark. So he went in to stay with them. He sat down to eat with them, took the bread and said the blessing. Then he broke the bread and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Wasn't it like a fire burning in us when he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? They got up at once and went back to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven disciples gathered together with the others. Amen.
as most of you know, and if you don't, you will know by the time you've read the key. I spent some time this summer walking the St Magnus Pilgrimage Way on Orkney. It is advertised as being 55 miles. It isn't. It's a little bit longer. Uh, my walking companion and I were testing out the app for them, and she has a thing that counts miles, and some of the mileages are a bit out, but never mind. It's a beautiful walk. It covers all sorts of different terrain, and the views are breathtaking. There are also moments when it's actually pretty scary because you're up on bits of headland that are kind of as wide as your feet with a sheer drop on that side and barbed wire on that side. There, there were times when we walked like that, holding on to the barbed wire. And there was one particular spot where there's actually a ravine, effectively. It's only quite narrow. On one of these narrow bits... Graham's laughing. He's probably done it. And, and, and breezed over it, no doubt. But there is this thing that's about that wide. So quite, you know, you have to do a little bit of a leap. And I'm about six inches taller than my friend, and I was in the front, so I could manage it. But her legs aren't long enough, so I had to turn back, take her hand, and help her across the gap. But it's a wonderful walk. And... We completed it, and on the last day of our holiday, we called into the Orkney Museum, which is really interesting. And in the gift shop, they have various St Magnus Way gifts that you can buy. And I chose to buy, for myself and for some of my friends, as gifts, coasters um, with the St Magnus Way symbol on it. And the woman who was serving behind the counter asked me a really interesting question. She said did you walk the, the way? And I said, yes, we did. And she, I said, have you done other pilgrim ways? And I said, well, no. I've done other long-distance walk, but not other pilgrimage walks. And she said, and this is the really good question, what's the difference? What's the difference between just doing a nice long walk and enjoying the countryside and going out on a pilgrimage? I'm kind of going to spend the next year thinking that one through. Um, part of what I'm going to be doing with my sabbatical studies this year is some stuff around spirituality and within that some stuff around pilgrimage. But I think the heart of the answer is it's about intent. A pilgrimage is, if you like, a sacred journey. A journey where the person or persons consciously seek to come a bit closer to God consciously set out to reflect on matters of faith and life and to do so in the context of a physically demanding journey. And in some senses, that journey is a metaphor for life because sometimes in life we're holding on by our fingertips and sometimes in life we need somebody to take our hand and help us over that big ravine. And sometimes it's just a lovely breeze, like walking through a big meadow and it's nice and flat and there's a babbling brook or a nice little burn or whatever nearby and life is all good. And I chose the two Bible readings I did, not because they're pilgrimages as such, but because they are examples of physical journeys that people undertook which brought them into contact with Jesus, into contact with God. The story of the Magi is an intentional journey. These intelligent, well-educated foreigners had in mind to find this new king whose star they had seen. They had seen something they thought was really important, and they, they set out to find it. And they had an idea in their heads what that meant, which is why they ended up at Herod's palace. And it's a strange story because at this point, Herod is quite helpful and he's, he finds out where they really ought to go. And so their journey continues to a back street and a house where there is a small Hebrew toddler of peasant parents. And in that child, they glimpse the divine. And they are so changed by that experience that in a dream they hear God say, go back a different way. Their life is totally changed. The direction they go is changed by that encounter with God. All of which happened because they set out on this journey. The Emmaus Road story is completely different. 
It's a story of two very bewildered, sad people who are absolutely devastated because this man, Jesus, who they thought just might be the Messiah, has died. He's been executed. And they're lost, and, and they decide they're going to go home, so there is an intentionality about the journey. And as they go, they choose to reflect on what's been going on, and, and they're talking about it. And this stranger comes along who just doesn't seem to have a clue what's been going on. And I, I, I think if I was them, I'd be t utterly bewildered by this. How, how can you not know? How can you not know this awful thing that has happened to us? But he doesn't. But something in this stranger enables them to open up and share a conversation. And the journey goes so much quicker than they thought was possible. And they end up back at home just as it's getting dark. And they say, look, come and have dinner with us. It's, it's late. You don't want to be carrying on. And of course, we know the story. We know that as they sit down, as they invite the, the stranger, as was custom, to say the grace, to say the blessing and break the bread, suddenly they realize, this is Jesus. This is the person to whom metaphorically they have been journeying whilst physically they walk the long walk home. And again, for them, there's a complete turning around. They're, they're, they feel so different now. They're happy. They're excited. They run back down the road in the dark, bang on the door and say, let us in, let us in. Guess what? We have seen Jesus. And I think there can be the unexpected too. Sometimes life is plumbing awful. Sometimes we slog on, and it can be a surprise who shares that journey with us. Sometimes people we don't know are the people who enable us to find the answer to our questions. And yes, we too, perhaps, can encounter God or Jesus along the way. I've chosen a hymn about pilgrimage, and I have to confess I don't know it. But Paul has found a tune for us that we do know. And I kind of chose it with Jeff in mind because actually it's Welsh. It's written by William Williams and translated from the Welsh. And as I'm sure you know, Welsh hymns always have a slight nuance that we don't get in English or Scottish hymns. So it's, it's, it's interesting always to hear those. But let's give it a go. Let's stand, if we're able, as we sing this hymn. A pilgrim in a desert land. I wander far and wide expecting I may come, I may sometime come, close to my father's side.
I'm now going to do my Jeff impression. Um, I can't do the accents, I'm afraid. But we're going to hear two extracts from the Old Testament, the first of which is very short indeed. David and Jonathan are talking, and Jonathan says, May our promise to each other be still unbroken. If it is broken, the Lord will punish you. Once again, Jonathan made David promise to love him. For Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. And then an extract from the story of Ruth and Naomi. Long ago, in the days before Israel had a king, there was a famine in the land. So a man named Elimelech, who belonged to the, the clan of Ephrath, and who lived in Bethlehem in Judah, went with his wife Naomi and their two sons Marlon and Kilion to live for a while in the country of Moab. While they were living there, Elimelech died, and Naomi was left alone with her sons, who married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. About ten years later, Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left all alone, without a husband or sons. Sometime later, Naomi heard that the Lord had blessed his people by giving them a good harvest, so she got ready to leave Moab with her daughters-in-law. They started out together to go back to Judah. But on the way, she said to them, Go back home and stay with your mothers. May the Lord be as good to you as you have been to those who have died. And may the Lord make it possible for each of you to marry again and have a home. So Naomi kissed them goodbye, but they started crying and said to her, No, we will go back with you to your people. You must go back, my daughters, Naomi answered. Why would you want to come with me? Do you think I could have sons again for you to marry? Go back home. I'm too old to get married again. And, and even if I thought there was still hope and so got married tonight and had sons, would you wait until they'd grown up? Would this keep you from marrying someone else? No, my daughters, you know that's impossible. The Lord has turned against me and I feel very sorry for you. Again, they started crying. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and went back home. But Ruth held on to her. So Naomi said to her, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back home to her people and to her God. You go back home with her. But Ruth answered, Don't ask me to leave you. Let me go with you. Wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and that's where I will be buried. May the Lord's worst punishment come upon me if I let anything but death separate me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more.
as we reach the end of our summer series thinking about aspects of spirituality, it seemed good as part of our wrapping up of that idea, those ideas to focus briefly on the idea of the Anamkara, or the soul friend. And this rather strange image is old Gallic rune writing that says, Mi Anamkara, my soul friend. And these kind of markings are found on standing stones, especially in Ireland, but also in parts of Wales and Scotland and other Celtic parts of the world. If we were to ask most contemporary Christians where your soul is, probably the answer will be in your heart, possibly in your brain or your mind, maybe a bit of both. But for the ancient Celts, the soul was like a luminous thing around us. Do you remember those old adverts for Ready Breck, those who grew up in Britain in the 70s, of the children that went out with the glow all around them? Well, that's kind of how the Celts seem to have imagined the soul. Something glowing around you, not unlike the aura that some other spiritualities might, might identify. And that this glow could be perceived by the soul of another. And that just sometimes you would meet somebody and the overlap of your glows, your souls, would prove very special. That their soul and your soul would become friends. And this idea was very popular with the early monastic traditions that throughout these islands, whether Celtic or Roman. The idea of the soul friend, the person who would look out for your soul, your spiritual well-being. Different from a soul mate, which has a kind of romantic sense to it, the soul friend is particularly the one who journeys with you in your journey of faith. The two Bible stories I chose to just lead us into thinking a little bit about soul friendship are not strictly about that. But there's only one reason that we, just, we have those stories as they are in the Bible. And that's because they're unusual, totally unusual in their context. In those days, marriage was a contract about property. Women were chattels who were given to some bloke to reproduce for him, if I put it quite bluntly. Love didn't come into marriage. Now, the nature of a relationship between David and Jonathan is one that people argue about. Whether it was a homosexual relationship or whether it was a platonic relationship, is not important for what we're about today. What is significant about the David and Jonathan relationship and the Ruth-Naomi relationship is they're what we might call troth relationships. They are voluntary en voluntarily entered covenant relationships between two people. David and Jonathan loved each other and they promised to look out for each other come what may. Ruth and Naomi loved each other across their cultures, across a religious divide, and actually promised to look out for each other for the rest of their lives. And in both cases, which I hadn't even spotted till I read it out loud this morning, they invoke God's punishment if they don't tend to those relationships. That's pretty scary stuff. But these are relationships that are about looking out for each other as whole people and as spiritual people. They're relationships which traditionally would have lasted a lifetime. So if, if a monk uh, or a nun found an anamkara, a soul friend in another monk or nun, that would be expected to last them through their life. And they would have accountability. They would expect to open up to that person about their prayer life and actually say, do you know what, actually I'm really struggling to pray at the moment. They would expect that person to ask them questions about how they behaved. And they would do that for each other. It's a mutual thing. It's not just that I, I take from you 
although you, the Anamkara, may actually be able to advise me. The idea of soul friendship, or at least spiritual accompaniment, is something that a lot of Baptists in Scotland are ever so, ever so wary of. I'm, I kind of moved more that way over a number of years myself. And it was a bit of a shock, to be fair, 10 years ago, when I arrived and talked about spiritual direction and mentoring, and one or two of the Baptist ministers looked at me like I had three heads, and, and was I actually secretly a Catholic? But it's really something very ordinary, and it's pleasant for many of us in other parts of our life. And I just want to talk very briefly about three kinds of relationship which for some people are really helpful, if not for a lifetime, at least for a season. The first one of those is mentoring. Many of us will have come across that in, in our work context or everyday life. I've actually been mentored or have been a mentor for the greater part of 30 years. That's quite a scary realisation. I mentored young women engineers when I was in industry. I was mentored in industry myself. I was mentored as a, a, an experienced minister. And I continue to mentor, as it happens, women ministers for the Baptist Union of Scotland and the Baptist Union of Great Britain. And it's a great privilege. Mentoring is often seen as... Um, a more experienced person helping a less experienced person. But I've always tried to keep some level of mutuality uh, and sharing. Um, I don't pretend to my mentees that I have all the answers. In fact, I usually say, I don't know. But I've been there too, and it's okay. A lot of it for me is about normalising. But a mentor relationship is one we enter to enter either voluntarily or in the case of ministers because they're told to. Um, and it has a contract, an agreement, that this is what we will do. This is how often we will meet. These are the areas we will focus on. And for some people, that can be really helpful. Some people find the idea of a spiritual mentor a good thing. Some of you, certainly the managers anyway, will know that I have a pastoral supervisor something I actively sought out when I moved up here, though it took a few years to find somebody. And that is a contracted relationship between myself and somebody who is specifically trained to enable ministers to reflect on their practice. So we meet reasonably regularly, if not particularly frequently, and either I will take to her something I want to talk about that's been going on in church life, or more typically, she will think of some questions she wants to ask me, and we will use that as a way to help me to, to reflect on church life. So it does have an explicitly spiritual dimension to it. We pray together sometimes. But it also has a focus on, on, on reflecting, helping me to look into my heart, my soul, my mind, my practice, and say, how is this leading me and leading others closer to God? What's good that we want to celebrate? What's not so good that we might need to look at? And it's good. It's enriching. It certainly helps me to think through things. Usually these relationships last for a few years, and then, for whatever reason, people think it's time to, to have a change. We haven't got up to that point, but we do review once a year. Is this still working? Is this a relationship that's helpful for me as a person who is being supervised? And then there is spiritual direction. I haven't yet found a spiritual director. I probably haven't looked hard enough. But I have a number of friends and colleagues who are spiritual directors. People with whom you enter a relationship that specifically focuses on your spiritual life, on your prayer life, on your Bible study, on that part of the life where most Christians kind of squirm because we don't feel we're good enough. And a good spiritual director is somebody who will help you to think through, not what you're doing wrong, but how we might enable you to journey more closely with God. What different styles of prayer might be helpful so that you're not beating yourself up because you haven't prayed for 30 minutes every morning before breakfast or whatever it might be. 
what kind of Bible study would nurture you, what kind of reading would nurture you, help you to grow. Sometimes we just click with somebody. We meet somebody in church or through another organisation with whom we just click. And there is that kind of merging of the souls. The sense that this is a person I want to, to share my spiritual journey with and, I, and they with me. And that's great. But it isn't always how things work out. The thing about soul friendship is it requires real honesty. When I meet with my pastoral supervisor, she expects me to tell her the truth. She doesn't expect me to put on my Sunday smile if actually that's not how I'm feeling. And even if I am feeling really happy, then she wants a real smile, not like the Sunday one. Soul friendship, spiritual accompaniment, mentoring, whatever it is, needs us to be honest, needs us to be open, needs us to be vulnerable and able to take risks. So yeah, it has a bit of that pilgrimage story in it as well. And that's not easy. But I think also part of what's important about soul friendship is how it works out in community. Not just about me and my supervisor or me and my spiritual director or whoever it might be, but about us together. We covenant as members here, and I think actually looking around, virtually everybody this morning has covenanted as part of this church. We say, I'll be here for you, and you'll be here for me, and we'll be here for each other, and we promise to be there and to walk together and to be hospita hospitable to each other and to share with each other. But if you're anything like me, there are those Sundays where you put on that face and just come and pretend everything's okay. I get that. I totally get that. And, and, and maybe there is something right about that. But for me, there is a challenge there about finding what, when I was training, was called appropriate vulnerability. Making this a safe enough place to say, do you know what, actually today I feel pretty rubbish. Actually, I don't, but you know, if I did, um, to say, actually, life's tough. To say, I'm really frustrated with what's going on at work. I really don't understand what's going on in the world, whatever it is. And to know that we're loved and held and supported. And I, and I think we do that. I, I genuinely think we do that. But maybe it's an area where we can do even better where we actually can feel safe enough to take off those masks, if only with some people, and actually have a deeper relationship. The idea of soul friendship, of people who share our journey with us, is a powerful and profound one. And I came across this little thing, which I'm going to read to you now, because I think it's quite helpful. According to Celtic spiritual tradition, the soul shines all around the body like a luminous cloud. When you are very open, appreciative and trusting with another person, your two souls flow together. This deeply felt bond with another means you have an anamkara, or soul friend. And this is a bit that I think is really good. Your anamkara always beholds your light and beauty and accepts you for who you truly are. The anamkara awakens the fullness and mystery of your life. Your anamkara always beholds your light and beauty and accepts you for who you truly are, even with two spelling mistakes in the thing I copied off the web. The anamkara awakens the fullness and mystery of your life. And I'd actually like to give everybody a little card today to take away, which has got an extract from those words on it. And on the other side, it has some words from a hymn which are important for us as a church community. And as we pass those round, 
maybe we can sing together this beautiful hymn, Brother, Sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. and for each other. Let's pray together. God of all creation, from the tiniest subatomic particle to the vastness of the universe, we trust that the promise is true, that you love it, declare it to be good and bless it. We hold fast to the assurance that in the fiercest storms, you are like solid rock beneath our feet and a safe, dry tower in which we may find shelter. We know that you delight in our prayers as in our praises and that in scripture we are told to pray for all who hold positions of authority and even for those we may consider our enemies whose values and actions we cannot condone. This is really hard. It demands of us compassion and humility, wisdom and resilience. We confess that sometimes, even oftentimes, we would rather not give our attention to the news reports because they leave us angry or confused, or fearful, or dismayed, or all four and more. It will be so much easier to bury our heads in the sand and hope it will all go away, but it won't. We confess too that our motives are mixed and muddled, that both our silence and our shouting are in some measure complicit in or compliant with the context of which we are part. So we take our courage in our hands and we pray for powerful political leaders 
whose personalities and policies stir powerful emotions within us or within others. We pray for Donald Trump, for Boris Johnson, for Angela Merkel, for Nicola Sturgeon, each entrusted with huge responsibilities, each needing wisdom, compassion, humility and integrity, each of them with their own private hopes and fears. In this anxious time of uncertainty about the future of our nation and nations we know and love, grant us the courage we need to engage with the issues, the insights to inform our understanding and the confidence to speak truth to power wherever and whenever we can. And as powerful international leaders meet to hold high-level discussions about climate change, we can only watch powerless if vast swathes of Amazonian forest are destroyed by wildfire. Please, God, please move the hearts and minds of all who can to act in ways to put out the fires and preserve what remains of this precious ecosystem and then to learn the lessons. At this time of transition for young adults moving into college or university education, some moving to new towns and cities or even new countries to study, we recognise the enormity of this practically and emotionally as they balance the excitement and nervousness of new beginnings. Help us as a community, as we welcome, encourage and support our own young folk in their education and any new students who may journey with us. And also our own relatives and friends as they move forward in independence. We call to mind our siblings in Christ who are part of the Baptist churches in Kirkwall, Knightswood, Ladywell and Larbert. It is slightly easier to pray for those we know, whose ministers and members are our friends, but you, Lord, know them all and are with them to strengthen and uphold, lead and guide. So as they seek to serve you in their own context, may they be conscious of your accompanying presence. Our friends at BMS World Mission invite us to pray for Christians in the UK noting our vital role as salt and light in the communities of which we are part. We also give thanks for overseas mission partners coming to the UK to share their knowledge, insight and inspiration and for the work of BMS in providing training and support for them and for us. And so we come back almost full circle to where we began as we prepare ourselves to go back to the challenges of our daily lives in a world damaged by human sinfulness and inhumanity. So we pray for ourselves. But as we journey out onwards, our lives a sacred journey, our eyes fixed on the holy horizon of your renewed creation, that we would be aware of your love to surround us, and your peace to fill our hearts. For we make our prayers in the name of Christ, our true companion and faithful friend. Amen.
spirit of Jesus, spirit of love. Help us, your love, to comprehend and help us to use wisely the gifts we have offered to be and to speak good news to others here and elsewhere. Amen. We're going to end with one of our Sunday School favourites, which just seems the right way to end the summer, really. One more step along the world I go. Please stand if you're able as we sing. Celtic blessing as we go on our way. Deep peace of the running wave to you. Deep peace of the flowing air to you. Deep peace of the quiet earth to you. Deep peace of the shining stars to you. Deep peace of the gentle night to you. Moon and stars pour their healing light on you. Deep peace of Christ, of Christ the light of the world to you. Deep peace of Christ to you, now and always. <laughs>